0: Previously on The Great James Bond Car Robbery.
1: Organized crime in South Florida is very unorganized.
2: Unknown persons had cut the rubber molding on the hangar door and were able to reach in with some kind of hacksaw.
1: I could supply completely edible paper. Tough but palatable so that a suspect could make a meal of his notes. You get tired of golfing after a while, and maybe you get involved in a couple of drug deals.
0: You have to close your eyes and really just imagine paradise. From the Spyscape Podcast Network, you're listening to The Great James Bond Car Robbery, with me, Elizabeth Hurley. Episode four, Automotive Death Machine. This is what it sounds like. 40 miles an hour. 70. The four liter engine suddenly given a chance to take flight. We're on a good straight bit of road in a remote part of the English countryside. Hedges and fields bending into a blur around us. It feels like this DB5 hasn't aged a day since it left the factory in the early 60s touching 90 miles an hour now. As we slow, the cocoon of the interior comes back into focus. The burnished wood, the elegant 16-inch steering wheel, the cockpit-like array of dials and switches around the dashboard, even the reassuring hum of the bodywork against the wind. But there are consequences to being the most famous car in the world. The owner, the man in the driving seat right now, would only agree to us recording a test drive on two conditions. One, that it wasn't raining. A vehicle as well-preserved as this is kept under almost lab-like conditions to preserve its value. Even a light shower could throw up enough dirt to require a professional deep clean. Second, that we don't reveal his identity or the location of his home under any circumstances. It's not the fact that people might like to steal this car that worries him. It's what they might do to him and his family while trying to take it. People will do desperate things to get their hands on a car like this. In this episode, we'll be taking a break from Boca Raton and Florida to explore the ongoing global appeal of the DB5 to collectors and to thieves. And we'll be looking at the man responsible for the next step in the legend of the Goldfinger DB5. Ejector seats, machine guns, oil slicks and all. Back down to first gear.
3: I mean, I've dealt with all sorts of crimes, from petty damage up to murder uh, and everything in between.
0: This is Neil Thomas, former detective inspector with Westminster Police in London. He's now at AX Innovation, The people you call if you think your vehicle is being targeted by thieves.
3: In terms of vehicle crime, I go back some time, obviously we're 30 years, so I can remember how vehicle crime has developed over the years from smashing windows, the so-called joyriders of the 80s, and through to technology today.
0: When we spoke, he'd just come off a stakeout in Birmingham in the British Midlands, tracking a stolen Mercedes Sprinter van, a mini tour bus for musicians.
3: It had been stolen in Birmingham from a car park. The conventional tracker had been taken out. Not one of ours, but it had been taken out. And then we activated our covert tracking unit.
0: These are Neil's specialist anti-car thief tactics in action. Modern thieves often know to search for and disable the tracking device when they take an expensive vehicle. But in this case, that tracker was a red herring. Neil's team had installed a second, even better hidden device somewhere else in the vehicle. For professional reasons, he won't say where. And it was that device that pinged him with its location when the van went missing.
3: When I turned up, it was all locked up and the seats had been taken out, as in the front driver's seat, passenger seat had been taken out.
0: Stripping the seats out is a sign that a car's not long for this world.
3: If the thieves have it for long enough, they'll strip it down or change the identity. So I thought, it's not going anywhere.
0: He settles down to wait to see who, if anyone, will show up and continue cannibalising the vehicle.
3: So I'm sitting there just, well, watching Netflix and my Tesla, thinking, how posh am I? And thinking, well, okay, we're getting recovery on the way. All of a sudden, this guy walked past me, looked at me, didn't say anything, but I'd parked a little bit away from the van, and then all of a sudden the bloody van started up and drove away. He's been rumbled which won't up, if I'm honest. So we had a little bit of a
0: pursuit, you know, in this sprinter van. In Neil's favour in the pursuit, he's in a Tesla and the other guy is driving a van with no seats. On the other hand, they're in inner city Birmingham during rush hour, not ideal for a car chase.
3: It was sort of school time, you know, so about nine o'clock in the morning, so there's quite a bit of traffic already. But I, I was thinking, fantastic, if this guy goes on the motorway, there's no way he's going to outrun me in the Tesla. Motorway meaning freeway. It was not far from Spaghetti Junction, around that sort of area, so I was hoping he was going to go onto the motorway network. I could obviously talk the police in, you know, with my police experience, I could talk them into arresting him, which would be, you know, a good
0: result. But perhaps caused by the uncomfortable experience of driving at speed without a car seat, the villain makes a fatal decision.
3: So he went to around half a mile, realised I was behind him, jumped out and ran off. I was doing a commentary to the police to say I'm following the stolen vehicle. So they were pretty good. They turned up.
0: Meanwhile, Neil was able to inform the owner of what had happened. They showed up at the crime scene.
3: He's about six foot eight. And I said to him, are you the band? And he said, no, mate, I'm not a band. He says, I'm um, a drag
0: artist. The owner wasn't just concerned about the vehicle itself.
3: He said, I'm just worried about my stuff in the back. So he we've got size 13 pink high heel shoes in the back that he was concerned about. And they were there.
0: We wanted to speak to Neil about his work on one case in particular. A case that shows that cars like the DB5 are still under threat today, just as much as they were when Anthony Pugliese's car was stolen in 1997. It takes place in a very particular part of Britain, not the inner city. In fact, the opposite.
3: You can see on the video that it's a really nice day. And, you know, you've got Bentleys, you've got Lamborghinis, you've got Rolls
0: Royces. We're watching an unassuming video posted online in 2020 by R35Addict, a Car spotter's YouTube channel. The scene? The village of Alderley Edge in Cheshire, Northern England. Picture an ordinary English village high street on a summer's day. Quaint shops, old-timey stone buildings and luxury cars everywhere. The video's called, appropriately, a quiet day in Alderley Edge.
3: I'm just watching a Lamborghini drive past.
0: There's obviously uh, a lot of
3: high net worth people in this particular area, footballers, business people, etc.
0: That's putting it mildly. The whole area is known as the Golden Triangle. Golden because, well, there's lots of gold on show here. So much so... That car spotters travel to Alderley Edge at the weekend just to watch the endless stream of beautiful cars driving through the town centre. It is a place of conspicuous consumption. Jill Burdett is a former journalist for the Manchester Evening News. The Golden Triangle was part of her beat.
4: It's full of designer shops. You can't park your Ferrari on the street because the Aston Martin's in the way. I sort of blame David Beckham a little bit.
0: Beckham the football player, or soccer if you're an American former England captain.
4: Because he bought a place in Alderley Edge, and that was in 2001. And that sort of started the explosion of money and sort of newer money pouring into the Alderley Edge. So footballers move there, football managers moved there, soap stars, TV presenters, all would move to the Golden Triangle of towns. And footballers and TV stars also
0: have certain basic requirements
4: every big house that was built as a swimming pool and a gym because you were dealing with footballers who were bored. And security was a big thing as well. People who do have a lot of nice cars would want to be able to drive through electric gates into an underground car park where their cars are parked safely. It's good to be safe.
0: And not unlike in 1990s Boca Raton, new money isn't always welcomed by the older establishment.
4: There was a story some years ago where the vicar from the local church actually left because he said, you know, you're worshipping the wrong idols, the wrong gods. In
0: other words, repent of your Astons, your Ferraris, your limited edition Maseratis.
4: There is a lot of conspiracy with I mean, back in 2004, Wilmslow was, was called the champagne capital of Great Britain because of the amount of champagne that was sold by the local wine merchants.
0: Again, like Boca Raton, cars play a big part in Golden Triangle culture. The Alderley Edge Supercar Parade hasn't been held for a while now, but when it is, it attracts thousands of visitors.
4: And all the supercar owners will gather and drive their cars through Alderley Edge? Footage from 2016 shows a millionaire's traffic jam of Porsches,
0: Rolls Royces, and of course, Aston Martins. And when there are cars on display there will be people who want to take those cars on display.
3: It's gone from, I would say, opportunist theft. Now it's more organised.
0: Neil again. He's talking about the UK as a whole.
3: So I don't want to frighten people, but I do know from personal experience that thieves are quite sophisticated and quite determined if they want to
0: get that particular car. And amongst the luxury cars on show in places like the Golden Triangle, Neil says it is the vintage vehicles that are most vulnerable rather than more modern cars.
3: Yeah, the difference is with classic cars, is that their security is quite basic. So we haven't got the the immobilizers, the coded keys, they are just a physical key put uh, in the lock. So, they haven't got the technology. If you think about it, a classic car is very easy to steal, in my opinion.
0: Which takes us to one particular classic car in the Car Spotter video.
3: So with with this video um, that's been posted on YouTube, we can see uh, a car park, we can see Different G-wagons, you know, high-end cars. And we can just see the Aston Martin.
0: Yes, an Aston Martin DB5 purring smoothly across the frame. Not the lost Goldfinger DB5. This one has no gadgets, but just as elegant and in the same silver birch colour.
3: It's immaculate in, in its condition.
0: The video certainly does it justice. In the next shot, it's parked on the street by a supermarket. So the windows are down, you can see inside The owner appears to have left it like this, parked, with the windows open. Although how far away they are is unclear. The car spotter's camera moves closer, peering in through the open front passenger window, taking in that steering wheel, the dials, the hand-sewn leather upholstery.
3: The owner's left it outside the shop where he's just walked in, so they can't really avoid the attention. And most people buy cars like this to enjoy them, to display them, I suppose, show them off to a certain extent. And why not? You know, they're there for driving as opposed to being just kept in a warehouse somewhere.
0: This footage was posted to YouTube in the summer of 2020. And, so far as we can tell, it's the last publicly available footage of this DB5. Neil is clear that the car spotters who filmed this and similar videos are not thought to have had any involvement in what happened less than a month later. But the video is indicative of the attention a car like this attracts, even in a town like Alderley Edge.
3: This car was part of a collection owned by a businessman. He uses the cars. He doesn't just keep them stored away. So, you know, the Aston Martin was bought out for a drive on the 18th of July in the Wilmslow area and left the car at the side of the road, locked up, all secure, and went for a walk, came back, and the car had gone disappeared. He's devastated when you turn up and it's just not there. It's, you, know, you just can't get your head around it. So he was devastated and still he's devastated.
0: That's when he decided to hire Neil to hunt down the car and the thief. And, like the Goldfinger DB5 in Florida, there are signs that this was planned, carefully planned.
3: Now, In terms of a profile of a car thief, we don't know, but I'm guessing that somebody must have seen the car driving followed it to its end destination, waited for the owner to walk away, uh, and then stolen it.
0: In other words, the vehicle may have been under surveillance, allowing the criminals to pick the moment when the car was at its most vulnerable. And technology has increased some of these problems, even the same technology used by Neil to combat crime.
3: So there are examples where owners have found covert tracking devices attached to their classic vehicles. They want to track where the vehicle is going to. Keeping tabs following drivers around to try and see when they're going to be parked up so they can steal them.
0: Effectively stalking their victims.
3: It it probably feels like that, but, you know, what I'd say to people is that there are ways around that. You know, if you've got an Aston Martin, for example, you'll be aware that people are looking at you as you drive past. But, you know, keep an eye on your mirror. See if there's anybody following you.
0: So, if it happened this way, the surveillance would have revealed a moment of vulnerability. We know that breaking into a DB5 isn't all that difficult compared to modern vehicles. But then there's the question of the getaway.
3: So, you know, what they need to do is get away somewhere and hide the car. It still sticks out as a silver Aston Martin DB5, which is quite unique, really, even in that area. So my suspicion is that they haven't driven it away. They've probably got a low loader, you know, a covered recovery vehicle to take it away on the back of a flatbed lorry. Yeah, they're covered up.
1: You've got to remember, this is a classic DB5. Now, anything on that is going to be valuable, anything.
0: We decided to get another expert opinion on this. Someone who brings a different kind of experience to the situation. This is Michael Fraser.
1: I'm an ex-thief. I used
0: to pinch cars and break into houses when I was younger. He now works as a security consultant, and he agrees that cars like the DB5 are...
1: Very vulnerable. It's very easy to break into a classic car. To be fair, it's not just Aston Martin, it's all cars of that era that were totally
0: vulnerable. Once the DB5 had been taken off the street, the thief would have had limited options.
1: Because he's aware the car is identified very quickly and he doesn't want to be associated with it. He wants to shift it on as quick as possible. That car was pinched let's say three o'clock, you can guarantee by six o'clock, whatever's happening, it's happened. So he wants to shift it on to somebody who's going to break it or they're going to move it on to somebody else.
0: Break it up into parts. That is just like the van in Birmingham. And that's where the rest of the criminal food chain comes into play.
1: There's always a, a chain. So it moves on to somebody else who will then shift it on to somebody else.
0: And at some point, the vehicle will reach someone who has a big enough network to make real use of this valuable resource.
1: You would probably describe him as the negotiator because he's got a little bit more time. He's not in a panic situation. Now, he could be the breaker. In other words, the one who's going to strip it and sell on the parts. Or he could have somebody higher up who will take the car as it is You've got the thinkers coming into it then. OK, this is what we're going to do, and this is where we're
0: going to shift it. That means that the stolen car could already have travelled far, if it's still in one piece.
3: I'm still hopeful. I'm still hopeful that it's in the UK. I honestly think that it's, it's probably in a, in a warehouse somewhere. And maybe the thieves are thinking, I don't know what to do with this car. I can't sell it. I can't do anything. You know, Perhaps I've made a mistake. And I'm still hopeful that, you know, someone somewhere knows where it is.
2: Well, it's a stunning vehicle. Just the design of these vehicles was just so
0: absolutely classic. Remember Christopher Marinello, the fine art and supercar detective we met in episode one? The man who's made solving the Florida DB5 case his white whale and who's offering a six-figure reward for information that solves the case? He isn't involved in investigating the elderly Edge theft, but he's heard about it.
2: The intelligent thief isn't going to mess around and and turn it into a parts car. They're going to try to get the maximum, and in order to get the maximum, you have to leave it intact. But, you know, not every thief is intelligent. I I, I say this all the time. If thieves were intelligent, they would be having proper jobs instead of being a thief. According to Christopher,
0: DB5s and other classic Astons remain a key target for thieves, just as much now as in 90s Florida.
2: It gets stolen all the time, people, because thieves know that the Aston Martins are hitting several hundred thousand pounds. So when they're looking for something, they pass up the Lexus and go for the car that's worth a lot of money.
0: Even thieves can recognize quality.
2: The 1960s was incredible for the car world. I mean, the Ferraris of the 60s, even the American muscle cars of the 60s, they are stunningly beautiful vehicles. Yeah, they, the sound, the smell of the leather—you can smell the carburetors after they've gone. I mean, it's just—it has such a unique sound and smell to it. I mean, it's just—it's fabulous. It sounds crazy, but if you're a car buff, you know what I'm talking about.
0: Meanwhile, on the streets of Alderley Edge, the displays of luxury cars continue. Social media is kept up, the YouTube channel Supercars of Alderly Edge updates regularly. One of the most recent videos shows a convertible Rolls-Royce with a top-down parked unattended on the high street, near a Lamborghini, parked next to a Bentley, and a Maserati. At the time of recording in 2021, there's a cash reward being offered for the recovery of the Golden Triangle DB5, and if you do have information as to its whereabouts, you can contact Neil's team at ax-uk.com. April 1944, just over a year before the end of World War II and a couple of months before D-Day. RAF Thorny Island, near Portsmouth on the south coast of England, is the new home of Britain's Royal Air Force 609 Squadron. One of the country's most battle scarred flying outfits. And a young 609 pilot is sitting outside, perhaps waiting for the call to risk his life again over Nazi occupied Europe. What we do know is that on this day in 1944, he fills in time with one of his hobbies, drawing a minutely detailed pencil sketch of his beloved aircraft, the machine on which his survival depends. The drawing shows a Hawker Typhoon, known as a Tiffy, at rest, its wheels on chocks on a runway. The power and speed of the Typhoon is hinted at in the long curves of its wings and fuselage, the elegant taper around the bubble cockpit. It's the fastest aircraft the British ever deployed in World War II. Top speed of just over 400 miles an hour when fully armed, And, as we'll see, it gave this pilot a lifelong taste for fast, beautiful, deadly machines. He isn't your regular RAF pilot, not just for his artistic skills, but because of his background. Remarkably, he's German. One of only a handful of German citizens to fly for Britain in the entire war, Flight Sergeant Klaus Adam, later known as Ken Adam, Was born into a wealthy German Jewish family and had become a teenage refugee after the rise of the Nazis. Not all of his family made it out. More than most, Klaus has a reason to fight. His background also means that he has even more to lose than most in 609 Squadron should he be captured. Not just a traitor to the Third Reich, but a Jewish traitor. As a precaution, he's had his name changed on his identity papers the more British sounding Keith Howard Adams. In the pencil sketch of the Tiffy, the aircraft's huge firepower is lovingly detailed. The four long barrels of the 20 mm Hispano Mark II autocannons protrude from the wings, each one capable of delivering 600 rounds per minute. Not shown is the aircraft's most feared weapon the two banks of RP-3 unguided air-to-ground rockets, each one packing the firepower of a naval artillery shell. The rockets and cannon are specialist tools to do a specialist job. The 609 is part of a new type of ground attack force, precision, low-altitude raids, targeting German military installations, tanks, and armor. The squad's tactics leave little room for error. On every sortie, Klaus must hedgehop to the target, fly his tiffy at incredibly low altitude to evade German radar. At that height, there's nowhere to run, and little opportunity to bail out in the event of an ambush. Once over the target, releasing the unguided rockets accurately is an art form in itself. Klaus becomes skilled at firing only at the very last second. But as he later told the historian James Holland, The Tiffy also has a nasty habit of stalling while coming out of a dive, spinning over and crashing into the ground. And then there is the flak. A few weeks after he finishes the pencil sketch, the squadron is assigned to raid a German radar installation near Le Havre. On that day, they are the second squadron to attack and they approach in line at high speed. One in front of the other, with Klaus as the fifth airplane in the row. The German anti-aircraft gunners struggle to find their mark at first, but once it becomes clear that the typhoons are all approaching, one at a time from exactly the same angle, carnage begins. Klaus can see it all as he approaches. Two squadron mates in front of him are hit and go down in flames. He makes a split-second decision, dropping out of formation to make his approach from a different direction. But he doesn't escape unscathed. By the time he makes it back to base, his tiffy is missing two feet of its right wing. Two other pilots in the squadron never make it home. He records the tragedy in his diary in typical RAF style, Damn tough luck. Strangely enough, it is that near-perfect pencil sketch of his typhoon that is the best clue as to Klaus's post-war future and his pivotal role in the history of Bond and the db five.
5: A very gifted draftsman. He's very, very good at putting over visual ideas quickly.
0: Christopher Freeling is a film critic, writer, and broadcaster.
5: And I'm the biographer of the film designer Ken Adam. He had a fascinating accent. Although he'd been living in the country since 1934, flew in the RAF, et cetera, he still retained a very strong German accent. He also loved rather large Havana cigars, which kept setting off the smoke alarms at the Royal College, but uh, somehow that was part part of the act. And I said to him, what did it feel like? I mean, you were a fighter fighting German flyers in your own country, Ken, the country of your birth and the country of your upbringing. He said, yeah, I didn't think of them as Germans. I thought of them as the bad guys. I I just didn't think of them as Germans anymore.
0: After the war, Klaus, or rather Ken, is warned that his background and distinctive accent might limit a continued career in the British military, whatever his service record. So he moves into the film business using his training as a draftsman and architect to design extravagant movie sets for thrillers and epics, anything with a sense of drama and excitement. And already vehicles, speed and warfare are key to the movie sets he creates.
5: Between 1950 and 1955, he specialised in boats, for example, 18th century warships. Uh, He could turn his hand at all these things. So all of that, I think, and, and a very warm personality. People wanted to work
0: for him. And then in the early 60s, The Bond films, with their high-speed chases, guns, and sadistic villains come knocking. He becomes the regular set creator for the franchise.
6: I think my favorite quote about Ken Adam is, is one from Richard Maybaum, who said something to the effect that the one person who everybody on the James Bond team agrees is an absolute genius is Ken Adam. And the person who agrees most with that statement is Ken Adam.
0: John Cork is a screenwriter, documentary maker, founding member of the Ian Fleming Foundation, and one of the world's greatest authorities on Bond. He studied how Ken revolutionized the way movie design worked.
6: Ken said, no, I'm designing the production. The costume designer reports to me as much as to anyone else. I'm going to create a color palette for the entire film. I'm going to be involved in in the way everything is going to look here. He had this sense of certainty about himself, and this sense of elegance. And that was evident in all of his sets. It's evident with the way his house was decorated.
0: When you think of a classic Bond villain lair, what do you think of? Hidden bunkers? Desks with trap doors? Nuclear reactors staffed by faceless minions? All of these concepts are Ken's.
5: I mean, right from the very beginning, You've got uh, Dr. No's underwater apartment. You've got uh, nuclear water reactors and computers and high techery. And that's nothing to do with the novel. Already, the visuals are expanding on the novel. But I think the moment where Ken became an integral part of the Bond DNA was the Aston Martin moment.
0: Oh, yes, the DB5.
5: In fact, the screenwriter Tom Mankiewicz has said, the moment Q started explaining the gadgets in the DB5, Bond would never be the same again.
0: Because this was the moment when Bond films left Ian Fleming's literary universe behind and came into their own. In previous episodes, we've heard how Ian Fleming and Charles Fraser Smith each created part of the myth of the Goldfinger DB5. Fleming, with the concept of the super spy sports car, Fraser Smith introducing the idea of the hidden spy gadget... But neither of them thought of concealed machine guns behind the headlights, an oil slick dispenser, or a gear stick operated ejector seat. Enter Ken Adam.
6: So, one of the things that was happening societally at that point was in both the British press and the American press, huge stories about how many people were dying on the roadways. People would get into fairly minor, low-speed accidents, and they would be impaled on the steering column. They would go flying through the windscreen or just smash their head into it and cut their throats. I mean, horrible, horrible crashes that were happening. And what Guy Hamilton,
0: Guy Hamilton, the director of Goldfinger,
6: and Ken Adam, what they decided they wanted to do with the Aston Martin was they wanted to externalize that death trap. You want to know about a car that's going to be a death machine? we're going to build you an automotive death machine, but we're going to externalize that danger. We're going to take it and say, no, no, no. It's not the person inside who's at risk. It's everyone else. So they sit down, they brainstorm it, and they say, how are we going to make this interesting?
0: Dangerous and interesting? Ken gets his sketch pad out.
5: He designed twin flamethrowers on the front At the press of a button, you can get flamethrowers. He designed a sort of boxing glove overrider that comes out and punches the car in front. And I said to Ken, you know, what were you thinking of? He said, oh, it was frustration of parking in Knightsbridge. I said, oh, great. He said, yeah, sometimes I wish I had one. You know, when you're trying to park outside Harrods, it makes you fantasize about things like that.
0: (laughs) The flamethrowers and boxing gloves never made it into the movie, but they're there in Ken's meticulous hand-drawn sketches.
6: So he's sitting down and he's sketching and getting other people, draftsmen in his department, to come up with a variety of ideas.
0: Other people chipped in.
6: So, for example, Harry Saltzman, the producer, is a huge fan of the film Ben-Hur. He's the one who comes up with the idea of the tire sides.
0: Tire sides, knives that come out of the DB5's wheels to puncture the other car's tires.
6: Because in the chariot chase in Ben-Hur, you had had the spiked chariot wheels and, and them ripping up another chariot.
5: Ejector seat, well, of course, that comes from a Second World War aircraft. So that was probably a memory of Ken, of of flying Hawker Typhoons.
0: Technically, ejector seats were introduced to the Air Force after World War II, but the point stands.
5: And machine guns in the front. It's sort of turning an Aston Martin into a fighter aircraft. So there must have been a bit of that as well, I think.
0: It's remarkable. When you compare the production sketches for the Goldfinger DB5 with its weapons and gadgets proudly listed and displayed the similarity to Adam's typhoon portrait of 20 years earlier is undeniable. Of course, none of this would have reached the screen without the technical expertise to make Ken's vision a reality. Working alongside him was John Steers, one of the true greats of Hollywood special effects, then at the start of his career. It was his team that drilled an ejector seat hatch in the roof of the car, and one of his team crouching in the trunk, operating the bulletproof shield in chase scenes. Steers went on to win an Oscar for his work on Thunderball and the Star Wars films. A few years before his death in 2016, Ken Adam was interviewed for a film about his life made by London's Victoria and Albert Museum. The interviewer asked him if his time in the RAF influenced his approach to film. Yes, I think it
2: probably did. I loved speed. And in fact, I learned to fly before I learned to drive a car. High speed and you know, racing cars and so on. So it certainly influenced me in the Bond films later on, and design of cars, gadgets and so on. I felt very strongly that my designs had to be bigger than life, slightly tongue-in-cheek, but also reflect the time we were living in.
0: Does Ken's influence live on in modern Bond films?
2: Yeah, the larger-than-life
5: quality of the the world that Bond inhabits, the, you know, that there's gadgets and things which you kind of feel they're things that may well happen quite soon, is very uh, Ken. I mean, uh, I asked Ken why he stopped with Moonraker because uh, Moonraker was the last one that he designed. He felt it had all got a bit big and uh, so I think he felt it was time to move on with Moonraker because Moonraker was Bond's reply to Star Wars. And so a new world was about to begin and he kind of felt that you know younger people should take over.
0: Next time on The Great James Bond Car Robbery. Oh, you spoke to Coleman, OK. Do you think this Goldfinger car is the most famous car in the world? Robert
6: never respected Anthony because Robert went to Harvard. Are you crazy if you're not going to settle with this guy? I was his lion. I was here to fight for him. There was a $420,000 pot of gold at the end of the rainbow.
5: This is not like the movies. They're not chasing him down the street generally. Okay. They usually have what we call a kill zone.
0: That's all in episode five. The Great James Bond Car Robbery is brought to you by the Spyscape Podcast Network. The producers are cup and nuzzle. And if you want to know more about Ken Adams' life and work, we strongly recommend two books. First, Christopher Freeling's Ken Adam, The Art of Production Design, where you can see Ken's pencil sketch of a typhoon. Second, James Holland's Heroes, which includes a chapter on Ken's time in the RAF. Both books were invaluable for creating the section on Ken's wartime experiences. Thanks also to Julia Peyton jones and to the Victoria and Albert Museum for the use of interview footage of Ken Adam. The museum's documentary about him is available to view online. Disclaimer. The great James Bond car robbery is not affiliated with E.ON Productions, Metro-Goldwyn-Mayer Studios Inc. or Dan Jack LLC. Do you have what it takes to be a true spy? Now you can put your spy skills to the test with Spy Games. Spy Games is the thrilling new experience at SpyScape in New York. Test your strategy, agility, and teamwork in high-tech game rooms developed with experts from CIA and Special Ops to stretch your physical and mental agility. Inspired by the CIA's operational training at the farm, Spy Games will help you develop strengths you didn't know you had. Think true spies in real life. Find out more at spygames.com.